or he was imprisoned in Rome. And our sermon text today gives us Paul's response, which I invite you to join in studying. So, what do we find here? Basically, it's clear enough. Paul prays with thanksgiving for the reception that the gospel had among those at Colossae. But what ought to catch our eye is a series of reasons that Paul has for his thanksgiving. Paul draws our attention to four reasons, basically four good things which owe themselves to the fact that the gospel has taken root in, in this city. He gives thanks, first of all, for the marks of a Christian. Second of all, for a worldwide mission. Thirdly, for a reality of grace. And fourthly, for laborers in the harvest. And these are the things that I want to consider in, in that order this morning, beginning with the marks of a Christian. But that registers the question, what is the mark of a Christian? Um, in the... Fr- In the first century, Paul confronted those who would have made circumcision quite literally the mark of a Christian. And over the course of history, Christians have advocated for very different things, from all the way from clothes to hair to piercings or politics. But what Paul means by this is made clear enough when he writes this. We always thank God when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in the Lord Christ Jesus and your love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This was the report that Paul received in Rome. The gospel had changed people's lives. Specifically, it had produced faith, love, and hope. Now, if those words sound familiar to you, it's for a good reason. Paul frequently used that phrase to describe Christian experience and character. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, we read this. We remember before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians, we read the words of Paul who who responded to those who who insisted on circumcision by telling them this, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. This triad of faith and hope and love is no mere slogan. Without it really represents the mark of the Christian, the sign that, per, that a person has been transformed by the gospel. Without a faith in Christ, there's no salvation. Without hope laid up in heaven, nothing is permanent. And without love, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, we're nothing. So there is faith, hope, and love, Paul says. And then he continues this way. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. This triad of faith and hope and love owes itself to the gospel. Now we might think if we're merely looking at things from a human level that faith activates the gospel. But according to Paul, it's the opposite way around. 
It's the power of the gospel that produces faith. Faith coming by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It was this reality which led Paul to give thanks for the believers in Colossae. The gospel had done its work producing the mark of a Christian. So this is why Paul gives thanks. But it's not his only reason for doing so. The gospel has produced another good thing, namely a worldwide mission. Let's continue where we left off. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it has among you. Now for Paul, the news of the reception of the gospel at Colossae was not a surprise, nor was an event isolated all by itself. No, he says that the whole world, in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing. That is to say, it's producing believers and increasing their numbers. What Paul means is that after its beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the gospel spread to cities, Gentile cities, such as Damascus or Tarsus, Antioch, Corinth or Ephesus. These cities in turn became centers from which the gospel progressed further into the world. And so now with the gospel taking root in Colossae, Paul rejoices that the gospel is continuing to transform the world in which it it occurs. That's what the gospel does. It bears fruit and increases. And those are words which we need to notice this morning. They reveal something important about to readers of the Bible, and that something important can be introduced with a question. Where do you come across these words previously in Scripture? Well, the answer begins in Genesis itself, where God addresses Adam and Eve and says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And again in Genesis 9-7, God speaks to, Mo- to Noah and says, Be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth. And again in Genesis 17-6, God confirms his, his uh, covenant with Abraham. His words are, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now what do we make of these word connections? Well, basically, Paul is deliberately echoing the Old Testament theme of God's mission and purpose for the world and explaining that the gospel is the fulfillment of the creation mandate of the promise that he gave to Noah and the covenant that he made with Abraham. This is why Paul can say in Galatians 3.8, and the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, there should be a takeaway from us in all this. Just as Paul didn't see Colossae as another town along the way, neither should we see places like Augusta and Douglas and Rose Hill and Andover as merely wide places along the road. 
In the eyes of the world, these may be bedroom communities that revolve around Wichita and, and this vicinity. But in the eyes of God, this is where mission takes place. The gospel has an appointment for each one of these towns which we are located in this area where we all live. They're appointed for this gospel encounter. So this again is why Paul gives thanks. But his thanksgiving next changes his focus from the world back to Colossae, where the gospel produced another reality, namely the reality of grace. And again, we should begin with a question. What's so amazing about grace? To appreciate Paul's answer, let's go back to our text once again, picking up in verse 6. The gospel has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, at the beginning of the message, we noted that Colossae was a, was a location where there were many religions and philosophies. It was a city which was located along trade routes which attracted all kinds of people from all kinds of places. But there was one thing that the gospel had that all these other religions did not have, and that was grace. In the religions that people knew at the time, all of them revolved around trying to appease the gods with sacrifices or with prescribed behavior of a specific kind. But the gospel revealed a God who had done himself what is necessary to make people right with God. But Paul was later to go on to say, he said, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh through death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This was the truth people understood for the first time on hearing the gospel message, and it hit them like a ton of bricks. Grace does that very kind of thing. Paul says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's what grace does. The question we must ask ourselves is, does grace still amaze us at all? Or are we so familiar with the gospel that it's, that it's something that we take for granted and, and talk about, but not think through deeply? In 1 Corinthians, it, Paul makes clear that the gospel was always an occasion for thanksgiving and amazement because he saw himself as exhibit A for the transforming power of grace. He writes, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, he's saying, Against all odds, I am a Christian. Against every human expectation, I am an apostle. So what's so amazing about grace? Well, if God can reach a Paul, and transform his life, God can reach anyone and touch their lives as well. Grace does that. 
Again, this is the reason Paul prayed with thanksgiving for these new believers, because the gospel was powerful in revealing the grace of God to people and applying it to their lives. But Paul's thanksgiving wasn't complete without referring to how the gospel actually came to take hold in that city. You see, if Paul was in jail, who brought the gospel to Colossae? The answer points us to a little-known figure of the New Testament and a reminder that the gospel produces laborers for the harvest. This is why Paul continues his thanksgiving. So let's pick up again where we left off in verse 7. You learned it, that is to say the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known unto us your love in the Spirit. So who was this guy? From Paul's description, both here in chapter and in chapter 4, we know this much. Paul speaks of him as a co-laborer in the gospel, someone whom he has known for some time. Paul reveals that Epaphras is himself from Colossae. And it was this man who brought Paul the news of the establishment of the church, not just in Colossae, but also in Hierapolis and Laodicea. But most importantly, it was he who evangelized these cities in the first place. It's quite possible that Paul knew when he came to faith, and possible that Paul trained him during the year and a half that he was in Corinth. But one way or another, Paul, Paul presents him as not simply a minor figure for our consideration years and centuries later, because he's not, what he accomplished was not minor at all. He was a laborer in the harvest of people which the gospel produced, which leads us to an important lesson along the way. The gospel is not meant only to save people, to rescue them, but to turn them into laborers into the harvest. And not just people who share an outline or a, or a tract or something like that with others. When we read in Colossians that the Colossians learned the gospel we realize that this is something which goes into some depth. Probably what it means is that people were grounded in the basic doctrines which provided this larger context for the gospel, like the identity of God, the fallen nature of humanity, who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish, and what our destiny is as believers. And again, the lesson is important because by training someone like Epaphras, Paul was making it clear that he was establishing churches and spreading the gospel and that this ministry was going to be carried on by ordinary garden variety people like you and me. Epaphras did not have to be the Apostle Paul. He didn't need to be. And neither do we. Jesus told his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send forth laborers into the harvest. And we are those laborers the church has prayed for over the centuries. Now, if you're here this morning as a believer, 
None of this is new to you. You know that you're called, you are saved in order to serve. You know that Christ has called you to be an ambassador in the world, to be ready to explain and teach the gospel to others. But that leads us to some very personal questions which we have to ask ourselves. Questions about power and priorities and about pain. The power question is this. Am I totally convinced that the gospel is the power of God for salvation? That this is what changes people's lives. Not my wisdom, not my experience, not my my own abilities, or even my how well I share the gospel. But the gospel is the power that does this. And therefore, I ought to live with the conviction that that is what changes the people around us. The priorities question is this. Am I committed to building friendships with people who don't know the gospel? Am I committed to pray for people who are my co-workers or my neighbors or people whose paths I just regularly cross? Is it my prayer that God will lead me to those who need to be reconciled and am I ready for that to happen? That leads us to the pain question. Am I willing to cross the threshold of pain, the pain line? You see, what we're dealing with is the gospel, and Jesus told us what to expect. We can expect disappointment. We can expect the gospel to be rejected by some, and that rejection will land back on us sometimes as well. We will be rejected. We'll be the ones who are considered narrow-minded or fundamentalist or some other adjective like that. If we're so afraid of the pain line that we face, we'll never get to the good things which God has promised come with the gospel. If we go past the pain threshold, we'll find out that lives are redeemed, that relationships can be healed, and that people can be reconciled to God. We can be sure that this is the good news from which come good things. Amen? Amen. Well, as God's people this morning, let's remember that like the rain and the snow which come down from heaven and water the earth, so is God's word. It will not fail to accomplish its purpose in our lives. So let's take a few moments of silence to consider what it is that God would want to do in our lives today through his word.